The subject today is the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ. Through the month of December, I have told you that I was going to preach four messages on the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and the entire focus of the preaching and teaching would be the person of Christ. And the first week, I spoke to you on the prophesied Christ. I gave you 40 Old Testament scriptures that tell us of what Christ would be like when He came. One of the most incredible proofs of who Jesus Christ is, of His deity, of His person, that could ever be presented are those prophecies of Jesus. And then last week, I spoke to you about the exclusive Christ, that Jesus Christ is unique in all the annals of history. There's never been anyone like Jesus Christ, and He is exclusively the Savior. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, a a truth today that this world rejects by and large, the Western world, our world, and yet is still a truth from God's Word. Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. Now today, the mystery of Christ. And I want you to turn your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16. 1 Timothy 3 and 16. And boy, we've had you up and down today. I mean, you're getting your legs exercised, but one more time as we read God's Word, okay? Will you stand with me as we read Uh, This is our custom here. We do it to honor the Scriptures themselves, the Word of God. And uh, it's a brief time. I hate to ask you to stand up, but this is probably the most important time to stand, wouldn't you think? And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, and just one verse this morning right now, verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Why don't you read it with me now? Everybody, one great choir reading God's Word, verse 16, 1 Timothy 3. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Thank you, and you may be seated. Well, verse 16 has the word mystery there right at the beginning. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. When I use the word mystery or when you hear it, What do you think of when I say mystery? You may think of a a movie, a suspenseful movie. You might think of a book that you have read, a novel or something that uh, is a mystery. You're probably thinking of a certain type of story. Uh, They used to call them whodunits, and the whodunit was a, a mystery. Who was the person who shot the guy or whatever the storyline might have been? A mystery to us is um, a story that keeps you in suspense until the truth 
is revealed. And so usually it's right at the last, and something happens, and ah, the whole thing becomes very clear to you. That's mystery as we use it in the English world, but that's not, I repeat, that is not what a mystery is in the Scripture. In the Bible, the word mystery is used in a completely different way than your normal concept of mystery. It comes from the Greek word mysterion, and it refers to a hidden truth, something that you would never know, you could never discover on your own, you could never figure out uh, through human reason, through education, through research. You could never figure out this event that was called a mysterion, a mystery. You would only understand it when it was revealed to you by God Himself. So, a mystery in the Bible is a truth known only to God that He chooses in His time to reveal to us. And when He reveals this, it makes a lot of things clear to us as that revelation appears. It's a truth known only to God Reveal in his time a biblical mystery. I'll give you a couple illustrations of it. A mystery in the Bible is the church. The church was never known in the Old Testament. You read all the way through your Old Testament, and you will not find one mention or one vague idea of what the church is. Those people lived looking for the Messiah, but never really knowing that there would be an entire age a long period of time, that period of time now has been 2,100 years, that that 2,100-year age, the church age, the age of grace, that that age would precede the coming kingdom. All they knew about was the Messiah would come and there would be a kingdom. The church was a mystery. And then the rapture was a mystery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament never mentions the rapture. But Paul opens up that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and in verse 51, he said, Behold, I show you a mystery. I show you something that was never known before in the history of the world, but now it's being revealed by God, a mystery. Now, our text begins, look back to the text, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And without controversy, meaning that this mystery is indisputable. This mystery is undeniable. It is beyond question that all people of faith, people who believe in Jesus Christ, the truth of all genuine believers is this particular mystery that he's about to give to us here. And so, this is a truth that all genuine Christians confess. This text, verse number 16, is one of the most powerful theological statements in all of the Bible. I know today people are not into theology, but that's a tragic, tragic thing that we're not. And this is one of the great theological statements, so pregnant with meaning, so compact, so full of of, uh, power for us as Christians today. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on, and he begins to tell us what that 
mystery is. And in the first century, the Christians thought this text so important. Even before they had a written Bible, they were singing this text. And this became a well-known hymn in the the ancient church. They sung it in their services. Now, I want to point out to you, first of all today then, the mystery of Jesus' birth. The mystery of Jesus' birth. And I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bible back to the book of Luke with me, chapter number 1. And we're going to read a little bit about it. It's familiar. Of course, you've all heard the Christmas story. Many of you could almost repeat it. But in Luke chapter 1 and verse number 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her, and he said, Hail thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with you. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying. And she cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, and a very, very important verse for you as a Christian today, the Holy Ghost will come upon you. That's how he will be conceived. And the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The mystery of Jesus' birth. And go back one more time with me to the book of Matthew, if you will, chapter 1. There's another account, two basic accounts of the birth of, the, of, our, of our Lord, and one in Matthew, one in Luke. And I'll read to you now from Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. And while he, Joseph, thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived past tense already has happened in her, is on the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And behold, a virgin shall be with child. And shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. The mystery of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 333 prophecies in the Old Testament, as I told you a couple weeks ago when I spoke on this. 
333 prophecies that described almost every aspect of Jesus' life before he was born. In fact, several hundred years before he was born. I selected 40 of them in the message a couple of weeks ago to show you that prophecy is really history pre-written and that all of these signs could only point to one person in the history of the universe, and that would be Jesus Christ of Galilee. And we looked at those 40 of them, and they gave us a lot of information, but you see, it doesn't give us every detail of his birth. That was still a mystery. That was still hidden. Isaiah seven fourteen says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. But it doesn't give us the details of the stable and all the other things that we know are a part of the Christmas story. That's a mystery. Now, every birth is, a, is miraculous, isn't it? If you have had a child, you went to the time of that child's birth, and all you could do was shake your head and say, that's a miracle. Years ago, I was standing in in, in fact, I know where I was. I was at the bottom of the stairs in the stairwell of what used to be the old Florence General Hospital before they built Carolinas. And there was a doctor there, Dr. Dr. Lee. He was an older gentleman and well-known across the area. And uh, we passed and shook hands and spoke for a few moments. And I said, I have an opportunity now. I must take advantage of it. And I said, Dr. Lee, may I ask you a question? He said, sure, preacher, go ahead. And I said, Dr. Lee, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you believe in Him as the Bible presents Him? Are you a Christian? And Dr. Lee said to me, Bill, I want to tell you I am. And let me tell you how it happened. I was a young doctor, sort of skeptical of the Bible and the miraculous and so on. And then there came a day when I became a practicing physician and I uh, presided at the birth of a child. And he said, I went home, and after that, I trusted Christ. I became a Christian. You cannot, preacher, he emphasized to me, preacher, you cannot watch the birth of a baby and remain an unbeliever. Every birth is a miracle. But boy, the birth of Jesus, never one before nor never one since like his birth, an angel visited a little virgin girl in a little backwater town of Nazareth. He revealed to her that she is already pregnant, that God has selected her from all the women who have ever lived upon the earth, and she is carrying the Son of God in her womb. And then she and her betrothed, and of course, engagement was much different, much more serious in those days than it is today. And they had to go to Bethlehem to pay the taxes that the Romans had imposed upon them. They go to Bethlehem, 60 miles away. They have to travel on foot. And then there's no room for them in the hotel, in the inn. And so they go to the stable because he has to get her to a place she's about to give birth now. And so they take her to the only shelter available, a cattle stall. And that night, he's born, the night of his birth. And here they are, this couple, alone in a cold and a dark, no doubt, dirty stable. 
I picture her lying on the straw. It's the only thing she could do. And I picture Joseph not knowing what to do, fear written all over his face as the baby is coming. And panic, no doubt, is upon him. And now the baby comes, and there's a cry of a little newborn infant. And they wrap him in swaddling clothes, strips of cloth. And swaddling is when they wrap the baby real tight so the baby can't move, you know. They do that in Europe, and more and more we do that in America. It's for the baby's own good. It's the best way to handle them, they say. And so they wrap the little baby in these swaddling clothes, maybe just rags, maybe just clothing left over from something. And Jesus is born. Here is God slipping into history through the back door of a stable. Can you believe that? God coming to a cattle stall to be born. A mile away, there's more mystery. I've been to that field. They call it the shepherd's field. It's about a mile away. Bethlehem is a tiny little village, 1,500 people. And there in that field, there's shepherds keeping watch over their flocks. And suddenly the sky becomes brilliantly lit. It opens up. And there are angels, visible angels. And the angels begin to speak to the shepherds, and they tell them. Interesting to me, impressive to me, the first words they ever said were, fear not. Fear not. This is extraordinary. This has never happened in history. But don't fear, because the baby that's born about a mile away from you, he is the promised one, the Messiah. He will be the Savior of the world. The first thing they say about him is he's going to be the Savior, the exclusive Savior, I might add. The mystery of godliness. You see, the Jews were expecting a Messiah. That was prophesied. They weren't expecting him to come to a cattle stall, to a stable. They were expecting him to come in grandeur and glory and from a prominent family and, and, and from the rich and the famous and the, and, and, and the influential. He didn't. He came to a little poor couple from Nazareth. He came in a stable. He just slipped in. None of the great people of the earth knew what was going on that night. Paul describes it later in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Here's what he says, And you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, all the riches of the universe, all the riches of heaven, although he was rich, yet for your sake, your sakes, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. The mystery of godliness. A hidden truth. A truth not known by anybody on the earth before until God chose to reveal it to them that night when our Savior was born that first Christmas. God borrowing a virgin's womb to become the Savior of sinners. God the Son entering time and becoming flesh. John, 14, or John 1 and 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we beheld His glory. And that night they were beholding His glory, were they not? God who created the worlds, God the Son, condescending to become an infant, lying in the manger for us. Here's what I thought I had as I was studying. God who was infinite in power, so powerful he could fling a universe into existence, and yet he's laying in the manger constrained, tied up by those swaddling clothes. (laughs) The one who had all power is now a baby laying here tied up in those swaddling clothes. Oh, the condescension. Oh, the love. Oh, the humility that it required of our Lord Jesus Christ as He came to the earth that Christmas Eve. Christmas, the mystery of godliness, God visiting the earth. But the verse doesn't end there. It just That's just the beginning point. And as I told you, it's so full of great, great hidden truth revealed to us. But let me uh, go back to it. You want to go back with me in your Bible? If you have it open there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, our text. Because I don't want you to forget this verse. There's a reason those early Christians sung it as a hymn. They didn't have a written version of the Bible like you have. And so they sung their doctrines. They sung their beliefs because that way they could ingrain them into their minds and they could remember them. And so we've looked at the mystery of Jesus' life, but let's look for a few minutes at the, or we've looked at the mystery of Jesus' birth. Let's look for a few moments now at the mystery of Jesus' life and follow in the verse. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's his birth. But secondly, he was justified in the Spirit. And what is that? The word justified, right in the margin of your Bible there, vindicated or demonstrated or proven to be. Jesus Christ was proven to be who he said he was by the Holy Spirit's working in his life. You see, from his baptism on, the first 33 years of his life, Jesus lived as a normal human being, but something special happened to him at his baptism as he begun his ministry, and the Holy Spirit of God came upon him. Now, listen carefully, because this this answers a lot of questions. People wonder about the two natures of Christ, his deity and his humanity. And Jesus Christ lived on the earth as a man, a 100% man, as the creed says. On the other hand, He was 100% God. Don't ever think Jesus was some sort of a hybrid man-God. He was not 50% God, 50% man. He was 100% God, 100% man, complete God, fully God, and fully man. That's one of the great doctrinal truths of the Christian faith, and you, you you must comprehend that. And so Jesus Christ for 30 years worked as a carpenter, but he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he began his ministry. And everything he did then was because the Holy Holy Spirit rested upon a pure, sinless, perfect human being, fully man. And so he was vindicated, his deity And his humanity was vindicated by the Holy Spirit's power. 
by his words, he was vindicated. They said in John 7, no man ever spoke like this man. Nobody could ever teach like him. He was vindicated by his deeds. He went up to the temple when he was 12 years old and confounded the theologians and the doctors that were living in and or that were there in the temple that day. They were overwhelmed. How in the world could a 12-year-old boy speak like this and know this? He was vindicated by his touch because the blind can see, the lame can walk, the leper is cleansed from his leprosy. The sea is stilled in its storm. The sinner is forgiven. The dead can live because this man is justified. It's demonstrated in his life. He's vindicated that he is the Son of God by the Holy Spirit that lives upon him. He's justified in the Spirit. He's seen of angels, the next phrase in your Bible. Think about that. The angels had seen him in heaven before he came to the earth. There he existed as son of God. What form he was in, we really don't know. Probably some form of a spirit form, like God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit. But the angels had gazed upon him, and they had seen him there on the throne of God with God the Father and God the Son. Angels had knelt down and bowed before him and sung, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. The angels had seen Jesus Christ in all of his glory, but they'd never seen him in a cattle stall before. Mystery. They never saw him laying on the straw wrapped in those swaddling clothes. They gaze upon him not in power and grandeur and majesty and greatness. They gaze upon him now in humility and in poverty as a babe in a manger. Back when I was in the music business a long time ago, before most of you were born, there was a song we used to sing, and you get used to singing songs every night, but there was one every time we sung it, it put a knot in my throat. It's such a beautiful way of expressing what happened right here. I know the angels up in heaven must have cried on the day when my Lord was crucified because they were there at his birth, but they were there also and they saw him at his death hanging there upon the cross, suffering pain to pay my cost. Oh, the angels up in heaven must have cried. They'd never seen anything like this. Justified in the Spirit, seen of the angels, preached unto the Gentiles, it says. Do you know how extraordinary that statement is? Preached to the Gentiles. You know, the Jews at this point thought of the Gentiles as dogs. In fact, they called them dogs. Many of them thought that the Gentiles had no souls. If you were not Jewish, you didn't have a soul. You were just an animal. And other than Jonah going to uh, Nineveh one time to hold a revival meeting and great numbers of Gentiles being saved, 
There's not a single person in the Old Testament through all those years that ever preached to the Gentiles. They didn't have the gospel. They viewed them as being worthless. They were idol worshipers. They were immoral. They sacrificed their children to idols in some cases. And now, mystery. Jesus has come, and these people now have the gospel, and the gospel has brought them hope. They're not any different. At the foot of the cross, the ground is absolutely level. At the foot of the cross, the Jew and the Gentile and every other human being stands on level ground. We're all the same. They preached unto the Gentiles. And so those early apostles took the gospel across the world. Preaching is out of favor today. I don't know if you know that. Boy, I know that as a preacher. You can go to seminary and you can learn everything except how to preach. They don't emphasize preaching anymore. They emphasize counseling. They emphasize, you know, humanitarian effort, social gospel stuff. And you're looking at a dinosaur because I'm a man who believes that God uses preaching more than anything else he uses on this planet. That's why I are one after 52 years. Now, I really wasn't looking for that, but okay. Here's what the Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Hey, he didn't refer to your vocation as foolishness, did he? But he did mine. Because he says, isn't it, it, it miraculous? Isn't it just incredible that a sinful man, an imperfect man, can stand with the book of God in his hand and that this gospel is so powerful that somebody walks in the door, hears it for the first time, believes it, receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, goes out the door, and their lives are totally revolutionized. There's nothing in the world that powerful. There's nothing that powerful. And so I always have elevated preaching here. Uh, I, I know today that, you know, 45 minutes and 15 minutes of preaching, we want entertainment, we want drama, we want dancing girls and flashing lights at church. But no, that's not God's method. God's method is preaching. And you come and the Word of God is preached. The Holy Spirit touches your heart, and it makes a difference in your life. And it did in those Gentiles. It's not the man. It's not Bill Monroe. It's the message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the old story of Jesus and his love, folks. That's what transforms people's lives, that message. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation to every person who believes to the Gentile and to the Greek. It's the power of preaching the gospel. And then it's believed on in the world. That little band of 120, they took the gospel. They took it to the cultured Greek. They took it to the proud Roman. In 300 years, the power of the gospel transformed so many people. Listen, in 300 years, the emperor declared the Roman Empire to be Christian. So many people had come to Christ that now the old pagan religions are being replaced 
with Christianity. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Jesus Christ and his power to change people's lives. World War II ended, and our great hero to me, General MacArthur, went to Japan. The, the Japanese people had come under the spell of an emperor, Hirohito, and he told them he was a god. And unbelievably, he told the Japanese people that he was God ruling in Japan. And the reason for their militaristic approach where they started invading other countries, China and all those other countries in World War II over in the Pacific broke out. It was because this man said, I am God and you spread Japanese imperialism all over the world. And they bombed Pearl Harbor December 7, 1941. You remember? No, you don't remember. But it happened. And and, and America was drawn into it. And we ended up dropping the bomb, the only time in history. But then General MacArthur went to Japan, and he visited the Japanese people. And here's what he said to them. He said, you people have been misled by this emperor. He's not God. And then he turned and he made a plea to America. And here's what his plea was. He said, America, please send 10,000 missionaries to Japan. 10,000 missionaries. If they'll come and flood this country with the gospel, this problem will never happen again. Sadly, we sent about 1,500 or 2,000. And so Japan today still lies largely unconverted to Christianity. But they preached the gospel, and it was believed on in the world. I know the professor scoffs. I know that the pseudoscientist ridicules. But your heart knows. Your heart knows. And when people hear the gospel, it's like a drink of cool water on a hot day. It satisfies it satisfies. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the soul of every believer, or every human. And when they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that vacuum is filled. Believed on in the world. Look at the last one. Received up into glory. That's his ascension. Acts chapter 1, I don't have time to read it, but it talks about how the Lord was speaking to his disciples, and gradually he began to ascend to heaven. And there he is at the right hand of God today. But I want you to turn with me for one final thought here to 1 John chapter 2. The little book of 1 John over in the back of your Bible, chapter 2 and verse 2. And there's a verse there that is so significant. And he is the propitiation. Now, the word propitiation is a big theological word, and it simply means satisfaction. He is the satisfaction or the payment for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That includes you, doesn't it? 
not for our sins only, but Christ paid the penalty for the sins of the whole world. So the work is finished. The atonement has been made. The price has been paid. Satisfaction has been offered to God, to God's justice for all the sins of all of humanity for all time. If I had a lot of time today, I would take you to Romans 5, or Revelation 5. In the book of Revelation, chapter 5, the story is of Jesus coming back to heaven after he'd been on earth for 33 years. It's his arrival in glory. And the way that he is received, the way that he is worshiped, the way that he's honored. When you get home this afternoon or sometime during this season, read Revelation chapter number 5 and see the way the Lord Jesus Christ arrives back in glory after his earthly sojourn. And today, that's where he is. He was manifest in the flesh in that nursery. He was justified in the Spirit. He was seen of the angels. He was preached to the Gentiles. He was believed on throughout the world, and then he was received up into glory. And he's there today. And you know why he's there today? He's preparing for our ultimate arrival, our triumphant arrival into heaven. The book of Jude describes it like this, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. People worry about losing their salvation. Well, if it depended on me, I sure would lose it. But you see, it doesn't depend on me unto him that is able to keep me from falling. My salvation is in his hands, not in my hands. And he's there awaiting my arrival and your arrival. And we don't know what the future holds. God's people may be slain. The church may be decimated, the visible local church here on the earth. We may fall upon some evil days. But you know what? My times are in his hands, and he will keep me from falling. And he'll keep you from falling today. And not a word that he ever spoke will fall to the ground, and not a promise he ever made will fail. And for those of you who trusted in him, in him, no matter how feeble and weak your faith is, he has promised you he will deliver you to God without fault, without blemish, without sin, without stain. It's his work that we're depending on. A.W. Tozer, great preacher of yesteryear. Listen to this as I close. Sometimes I go to God and I say, God, if you never answer another prayer while I'm on this earth, I will still worship you as long as I live and in the ages of eternity to come for what you've already done for me. God, you have already put me so far in debt to you that if I were to live a million millenniums, I could never repay you for what you've done for me. That's the spirit of Christmas, isn't it? That's the spirit of Christmas. God, you've done so much for me in sending your son. If I lived a million millenniums, I could never repay you for your grace. Our heads are bowed.